Hey guys, I'm always getting asked about my podcast and and how do you get to make it and you know what tools are you using to get online and get your ideas out there? Well, let me tell you, if you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's by far the easiest way to make a podcast today. Everything you need is all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then hosting, which is kind of actually technically relatively complicated. They do all of that stuff and distribute all that stuff. Guess what? For F-R-E-E, they do all of that. It's uh, Spotify. You'll see your podcast show up on Apple, on Stitcher, all these great platforms. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, did I mention that it's free? So here's how you do it. You go to the Anchor app. Go to the App Store. Just put in Anchor. Or you can go to the anchor.fm and you can get started right away. Thanks to our sponsor, Anchor. Hey, it is, it's the time that we do the podcast. That's, that's right now. It's the podcast moment. Um, hope you're having a great day. I love this tune. It's it's positive. It's uplifting. It's I'm kind of a I like a lot of different music. I'm a kind of a music guy. Hey, how you doing? I hope you're having a great day. Uh, my name is uh, Pierre Hulsebus, and welcome to my podcast. It is Hustle is the Hack. Hustleisthehack.com is the place that you want to go. That's where you want to be, the coolest place in town on the internet, on the interwebs. You go there and uh, you'll find stuff. Uh, hopefully, if you're sitting here, uh, pull up a chair, um, have a cup of coffee. You're going to hear uh, um, our people in the background here. That's uh, This is just you and me. That's it. Um, this isn't a big presentation to thousands and thousands of people. This is just you and me having a cup of joe. Uh, now, who who am I? Well, I'm Pierre Holsebus. I've been uh, doing uh, technology sales since 1989, and I've been pretty good at it over the years. And uh, so, uh, so I've got some uh, some stuff to say, some little experience, if you will. Uh, not only personally, for the first ten years of that time, I was doing most of that work for myself. Uh, but at a certain point, I got into doing consulting and creating sales programs and uh, marketing programs and CRM systems for some of the biggest companies in the world. And uh, now I, I work for one of the big software companies and uh, uh, I am back in the game as a salesperson. And so I just think I would pass on my vast experience and wisdom. Uh, <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek, of course. I'm not that, uh, uh, I'm always learning. In fact, I posted that up today. You know, I'm just, uh, I'm brave enough to suck at something new. And so welcome to the podcast, <laughs> sucking at something new, as you say. Uh, anyways, so, um, and you, and you are, if you introduced yourself, um, uh, and uh, we were here at the table with some of our fellow folks. Um, I, my mom is here, so be nice, of course, because mom's always listened to this kind of stuff. Even though she really, mom, I'm sorry, 
because <laughs> she's not really into technology very much. She's, you know, she's, she's an awesome person, but tech is not her, her thing. Uh, she is a baby boomer and she is awesome. And I love my mom. And, uh, so, but, uh, the rest of y'all here, uh, other than just be good old emotional support, if you are here, um, and maybe you're just out of college starting a sales career, well, that's you, this is for you. This is, this is my time with you to hang out and, uh, tell some war stories and talk about, uh, uh, the news of the day and how you can find opportunities in uh, good news and in all different seasons. Uh, you know, sales is such a great uh, place to be. It's a great career. I've dedicated my life to uh, to that career, and uh, so I've spent a little time doing it. And I think it's a good uh, it's a good career. And so, uh, yeah, if you're starting a business, um, if you're let's say in a nonprofit or have a small business. And you're basically trying to grow. Well, now you have to get, you know, you have a great product you've got to sell or you have a great service that you're providing out into the community. But now you got to write a grant proposals and now you have to go out and sell your wares to uh, buyers. Well, now you're in sales, you know, welcome to the show. And, uh, you know, if you're trying to organize a, a sales team, these are some of the things that we'll talk about. And kind of, I got some great ideas today, and some ideas of what not to do. I hope uh, I hope you heed some of my uh, my warnings uh, on that today. So we've got a couple things that we're going to talk about. We're gonna um, we have, uh, as I mentioned, if you go to my website, hustleisthehack.com, and uh, you will find a awesome spot on the hustleisthehack.com website uh, that is all about um it is all about uh like basically um really cool stuff is what it is uh no what what it is it's a it's about we call this we got the stack of stuff and uh, that's uh, one of the things that kind of helps guide us on our way, on our journey, when we go to the hustleisthehack.com, uh, you'll see different articles that I want to share with you, things that are curatable and uh, whatnot, and those are things that you should uh, probably maybe pay a little attention to. And uh, we'll go through some of those today, and uh, I've got some great ideas and stuff that's going in there. So uh, with that, let's, uh, let's sit back and uh, listen to what is in the mind of Pierre. That's right. What is in the mind of Pierre today? So what is in the mind of Pierre today? Well, that is one thing. Uh, you know, uh, if you go to that stack, I've got a really great article uh, that we found out about Amazon. Okay, so just for full disclosure, Amazon is a competitor of the company that I currently work for. These opinions are my own. I intend no conflict of interest and I intend to be a a adjudicator of truth and justice and the American way. And uh, so um, an article this week out of Business Insiders came out that some managers say they're hiring people they intend to fire later just to meet their turnover goals. And this is really an interesting side effect of two things that happen. And this is a, a let's say, unintended consequence of what's uh, what is a practice. First, the practice is this belief, and I believe flawed belief, that uh, we all, uh, if you lined everybody up in your company, you're going to find some losers in that pile of people. And uh, what you, what one of your jobs as a manager to do is to find those losers and get rid of them. The dead weight, you know, people that aren't just keeping paying the bills. They're just um, pikers that are 
um, worth very little to the company. They, um, they, we've talked a lot about this, uh, creating value. They um, take more value out of the company than they create. And they're just kind of easing along on the other, on the backs of, of all the awesome people that we have. And so as a manager, what you got to do is you are not only have to help um, coach people and get the best out of them, but you also have to find your losers in your pile. And the way companies uh, work today, um, like a, a company like Amazon, uh, there's two different uh, primary roles in the majority of the company. Take away things like, um, well, actually not very many. Um, everybody is kind of in one of two l- lanes. You are either a manager of people and you don't do any technical work in the company like that. You're not out there um, writing software or building marketing lit- uh, literature. Those are called individual contributors. And so the individual contributors, whether in sales or marketing or product development or in the warehouse, those are the people that actually do the work. They actually make the product and build the product. And then uh, for every about 15 to 10 or 20, somewhere in there, depending on the company, there is a manager. or uh, and, uh, and that's basically the structure. And everybody, all those managers roll up to other managers and their teams underneath them roll up to other managers. So everybody has accountability in an organization like that. And uh, it's great structure, great structure. Now, one of the challenges is... Um, uh, a company like Amazon cannot hire enough people. They believe it or not, there are segments of this economy, and uh, the the IT sector is one of them. Where um, if you let's say are going into uh, getting your master's degree in computer science, um, you're pretty much guaranteed a job out there. There, um, everyone that graduates uh, from uh, from college with a master's in computer science, there is a job for you. Period. Um, they, uh, it's, it's akin to having, um, you know, uh, uh, a doctor, um, you know, a medical doctor or something like that. There is always going to be a job for you. Um, if you're um, savvy enough, so to speak, to get out there and uh, put your resume out, if you want some work, there's work for you. And, um, th- that's the challenge right now. And in, in fact, um, companies like, uh, Amazon and all the technology companies and, uh, Facebook and, uh, all these big, uh, Silicon Valley companies, they basically suck up all of the import, all of the visas, all of the, the green cards of people wanting to come into America. Uh, it is because they can't hire enough Americans to take these jobs. This is one of the challenges in IT today. Anyways, the point is this, um, uh, these people are, um, hiring people to fire them. And it's just kind of a dirty little secret in in these kind of companies because the way that Amazon runs their system, uh, it's, it's a system, you can look it up, it's called Stack Ranking. Stack Ranking is this uh, model that has this flawed belief, as I mentioned, that everybody is on a bell curve. It's like grading on the curve, basically. And uh, the, everybody's on the curve. And um, what happens then is you have this belief that, you know, 10% of the people are the best. Everybody in the middle is average and 10% of the bottom is the dead weight. So, so on your team of 20, uh, two people have to go every year because they obviously suck at their job, or at least that's what our statistics tell us. That's what the best people in corporate tell us that we have to do. We have to let some people go from our team. Now, if we ran, let's just pick a, a high-performance organization, let's say a baseball team, a professional baseball team, or the um, 
the Boston Philharmonic. Let's say you were running the orchestra there. Uh, people that are uh, at the pinnacle of their career doing the very best in a highly super duper competitive marketplace uh, where the cream rises to the top. It's built by a meritocracy. Uh, and you now uh, in your orchestra, you have people that are the very best at what they do in their business. And so uh, now, though, you're going to manage that organization as if 10% of the people in that orchestra are stupid or don't know what they're doing. And your job as a conductor is to go find them. Um, same idea if you look at uh, any sort of, uh, uh, let's, let's just pick a basketball team. So you got like 20 people on the basketball team. And your job in a professional basketball team, pick any one of them, that of these million-dollar players, of all these people that uh, spent their entire uh childhood, um, pursuing the dream, uh, making the cut a thousand different times, uh, and uh, finally getting scouted and coming to the professionals about um, winning one of the 1,000 or so full-ride scholarships into the into the Division I colleges and universities, and then from there making it into the, the small class of people, let's say 20 or 50 of those um, D1 students that end up making it into professional basketball in the United States into the NBA every year. Okay, of those folks on your team, five of them are, have to be fired because they're at the bottom of the performance curve. And of course, that's just a just a dumb idea. And that's what this is. This stack ranking system is a dumb, dumb idea. And this is what it leads to. It leads to companies having managers that game the system. They have their core team. They know what they want out of them. Everybody's performing well. And then your management is going to tell you, two of you have to go get kicked off the island. Uh, no, that's not how it should work at all. And uh, so instead of finding ways to develop them or if they weren't performing well, uh, coming up with another spot and they just get rid of them. And so this is what's happening. Managers basically have their core team and then you got two or three people on your team that you hire just to get rid of them. You recruit people on your team that are low performers uh, that bring the whole team down, uh, but they are there to be hired. It's kind of like being remember in the Star Trek episodes, you know, you'd have Scotty and Bones and uh, you'd have uh, you'd have uh, you know Chekhov and Captain Kirk and Spock, and they'd all go, okay, let's we're going down to the planet. <laughs> and of course, there would always be lowly crewman number six, the guy in the back who was in the red shirt. He was like the security team or whatever. He actually had usually had no name. Nobody knew who he was. Uh, this was lampooned in that movie Galaxy Quest. Where <laughs> it's like, who is this guy? We have no idea. He has no name. He's just crewman number six. And that's who they're hiring, crewman number six, because during the episode, crewman number six is going to get wasted. He's going to get blown away or fall into the pit of tar or, you know, get run over by a beast or whatever, disintegrated by the bad guys. The alien's going to eat him or something. But this is, this is what's going to happen. So, so this is what's happening at Amazon. Isn't that amazing? That that actually happens. So um, when you're just a fair warning, when you are um, when you are looking for those kind of sales jobs where the it's highly competitive internally, like it's like a feeding frenzy. Customers come in, and then you're kind of competing against other salespeople in the organization, like lot like hyenas over a dead carcass. You know, you're biting each other and pushing each other off. Uh, you don't want to be in those companies. You're you're better than that. You are. You are. If you better be aware, because I'm telling you, I've seen it. I've seen it a thousand times. Believe me, I've seen it a thousand times. Here's how it goes. 
this is how the story goes. This is how that exit interview happens. You get called in uh, after, let's say, working for the company for four years, four or five years. Uh, numbers uh, numbers were low this quarter, Pierre. Um, you know, you're on the bottom 10. Uh, we're going to have to let you go. But, dude, I've been here for like four years. I've, I've blown out my quota every quarter. Yeah, but this this quarter just was just 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 not your game. You know, obviously you're just not as sharp as you used to be, and uh, so um, thanks, Sayonara, sucker face. It's time for you to hit the fan, hit the door. Oh, and by the way, uh, don't forget the non compete you signed. So you can't go work for the guys across the street uh, or take any customer information with you. Um, if you call any of uh, the customers that you won over the years in the next uh, two years, uh, we will sue you. So um, again. Again, good luck on your career. Talk to you later. <laughs> like that's basically what ends up happening. So you want to make sure when you're walking in the door, understand the way that they, those are good interview questions to ask. How do you evaluate your staff? How do you, you know, what does success look like? And why is this job open? And those are good questions to ask. That's going to get into the heart of the, you know, we're all excited when we get hired, but we're kind of not excited when the, when, you know, sales aren't good. And uh, uh, economies change. And uh, if you work for a, a butthead organization that does this kind of crap, then, uh, you know, you're going to be on the, the losing end at some point in time. Because, you know, we all have our day in the sunshine. We all get that, you know, salesman of the year kind of award from time to time. But there's also quarters when stuff sucks and they're, you know, just whatever. It's just the turn of the economy or, or just the way the ebb and flow of, of your product and pricing goes. And you may have a really bad quarter. And then, you know, so now you're going to get fired because of that bad idea. Anyways, shame on you. Shame on you, Amazon. I'm calling you. I'm calling you out on that bad idea. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Why are you doing that? I, I, I think... Um, don't do that. So yeah, don't don't go work for that place like that. When they do stuff like that, you got to figure out what's going on there before you get in there. All right, um, number number two on the kind of the 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 big list today uh, for for me, uh, I wanted to point out another thing in the stack uh, is well, yeah, these guys are really loud in this restaurant, so maybe I should turn them down a little. Uh, uh, anyways, uh, what I was going to say was this this one thing. Um, lumber. Okay. Lumber? What? Why are we talking about lumber? What does lumber have to do with anything? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a sales model of something that's happening right now that you may relate to. Maybe you may not relate to it. But it's a unique uh, kind of situation that's happening right now because of a lot of things that are happening in the broader economy. So let's look at this right now. It is um, why do lumber prices keep going up and when are they going to come down again? So if you are not aware or if you're not buying a house or have it gone out and priced lumber recently, uh, the average cost of building a house now has gone up in the last year over $36,000. And it's all because of one thing. Two by fours are super expensive right now, <laughs> like 300 times more expensive than they used to be. So um, it's not cool. This is not fun. This is this is a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Right. So if you're in the house buying business right now, if you're buying a house, the cost of building that house just went through the roof. <laughs> See, get it through the roof. <laughs> I know that was funny, wasn't it? That was very funny. Very. Yeah, there you go. 
Anyways, uh, so what are we talking about? Why is this important, Pierre? Well, let's let this continue here. Um, why is lumber prices high? Well, something has happened. One, it's COVID. And it's not what you think. Um, um, COVID happened last year. And that's affected lumber prices. And why is it affecting lumber prices? It's not for the reason like all the lumberjacks out there are like taking it easy and working from home. You know, None of them are in Zoom meetings kind of trying to work from home. Uh, no, that's not happening at all. Um, in fact, the lumber production in the United States is higher than it's ever been. It's like really high right now. And the lumber mills are running as hard and fast as they can. It's actually one of those... Uh, remember last year when they had different sectors and they had different kind of frontline workers and exemptions and benefits for people that were on the front line? Well, this is one of those industries that's been exempt from having to shut down uh, because, you know, you need wood. You need to, to run an economy. You need some basic wood, you know, to build some houses and to make stuff and cabinets and, you know, desks. All the people that are working from home need a desk to sit at. So, and this is actually the uh, the uh, how COVID has hurt, um, made this happen. COVID made this happen because we're all sitting at home now. We everybody needed a desk at home. Everybody had extra time. So guess what they're doing? Oh, we're going to hang out and start a new hobby. I'm going to start doing woodworking in my garage because I don't have, I can't go to the movies anymore. Uh, so a lot of people have started new hobbies or decided, hey, let's build a shed behind the house, honey. And uh, let's, you know, so all these little side projects that people kind of put off, all of a sudden they are doing now. And so that um, that just little bit of extra lumber that but millions of people going after that lumber now has basically made that lumber scarce. And this is a true commodity business. It is, there's no government number, there's no national board of lumber that says how much lumber should be built. This is market economy in action, raw capitalism working here is what this is. Raw capitalism working. The The, the lumber mills are, are making as much lumber as they can. The truck drivers are out there driving the, the lumber to the market um, and uh, people are buying as much as they can and there's still not enough supply in the supply chain to to keep up with demand. And so when you have supply and demand, prices go up. And so again, I go back. Why is this important, Pierre? Why is I, why is Pierre even talking about this? For goodness sake, I don't want to buy a house. Well, I'm giving you an example of a uh, economy or a business ecosystem that's built around a commodity and some of the strategies that will go along with this. So right now, look at the lumber market as a ecosystem. You have lumber producers, like basically treat the lumber as if it's a crop. So they go out and harvest it, just like corn or any other commodity. They go and cut it down, and then they bring it to a, a sawmill. They sell it to the sawmill. Sawmill processes it, and uh, then that goes to a a big uh, distributor. Uh, distributors decide, hey, these uh, this housing company wants you know 18 million uh, feet of lumber next month because uh, they're building some houses, and so they deliver it you know right to there. Some go to your local Lowe's and Home Depot. The they're a customer of those lumber brokers, and so um, it's that's how 
how it's done. And then uh, you have companies that build cabinets and the desks at Ikea and they they do that. And then there's also um, the trucking companies that deliver those because they have specialty trucks and vehicles that handle the lumber and, and deliver it to the market and deliver it to customers out in the field. You have all sorts of secondary companies like the brokerages and the middlemen, the distributors, uh, and uh, and using um, retailers that all sell the lumber. And uh, so this is the ecosystem, uh, also the home builders and the builders that rely on lumber to produce um, products to their customers. And then when you get into some of those uh, industries like construction, then you have subordinate or other ecosystems that are there. Uh, spheres of influence, if you will. So if you're in building houses, you have the concrete guys, you have the electricians, you have all the other people that uh, that are as, as part of that. So as the homing, home building market goes, so does the cement pouring market and the people that do tree trimming and roofing, all of those um, industries all rely on, you know, this uh, steady supply of lumber. So this is one of those things that's way down at the bottom, very straightforward in terms of the product, but it affects millions of people out in the market. You you can do the same thing and go into the oil industry where the oil production goes up and down and basically the energy supply market, um, you know, goes out and buys oil to power everything from making plastic to, um, you know, putting gasoline in the cars to uh, to making uh, chips to um, all sorts of manufacturing that uh, that uses oil and lubricants and and whatnot. And so as uh, the the demand goes down, the price goes down. As demand goes up, the price goes up. Supply and demand causes all of that. Certain elements are the same price all the time in terms of production. Anyways, so lumber is like this. Okay, so now you've got a little bit of economic uh, understanding of this market. So what is the opportunity here? Well, what is the opportunity? Get to the point already. All right, I'll get to the point. Come on, Pierre. Let's just get to it. You're kind of scaring me, Pierre. Okay, here we go. What is in the mind of Pierre? Here we go. This is it. So if you are selling into a commodity uh, ecosystem, you have to be aware of where the value of your product is. Now, if I'm selling my software or let's say I sell um, blades or I sell conveyor systems into lumber mills, the last thing that a lumber mill today in the current market is going to do is want to replace what they're doing. They, they are trying to make as much lumber as they can. So unless you're going to figure out how to not disrupt their current production numbers and improve it, this is not the time to be knocking on the door of a lumber company. They are trying to keep up with demand. And so they're going to not be likely to return your call. They're not because they're too busy making uh, boards right now and chopping boards up. And any proposal that's going to come in front of them that would affect that in, in any sort of risky or negative way um, is going to be considered interruptive and disruptive to the whole process. So you, they are not going to call you back. They're not going to call you back. Um, the uh, uh, So you have to consider this, like where in the supply chain are you and what interruption is your solution or your system or your sale going to do to them? Other organizations in that supply chain, for example, let's say the people chopping the trees down, they are have the other effect right now. They um, would love to get more equipment out in the field because it's not very disruptive. Sure, I'll go buy a brand new um, 
a tree chopper downer if that if I can put that into production uh, and uh, easily and low risk just bring it out and uh, we'll swap the old one with the new one and uh, my driver that's already there will just use the new piece of equipment and the um, that piece of equipment now will will double his ability to produce. Uh, so that'll be great. That'll be great. That's not disruptive. See, that's simple. But if I'm going to the, the lumber mill and I'm saying, hey, we want to s- turn your place off for the next three weeks here and we want to, you know, we want to replace your conveyor system because you can then put in, you know, 20 percent more capacity. That's going to be meet, met with some resistance and skepticism because the last thing they want to do is uh, kill their production numbers at all, at all. It's risky when they're producing. That's really interesting. So um, times are good, but it is also very risky to interrupt their production. The the uh, I, w- I had a I had a lunch one time. Actually, it was really interesting. It was a CEO of a billion dollar company, and it was a, just an accidental lunch. I was working on a project up in Canada. And the company was a oil company that is no longer in business today. They got bought out by by a bigger company, which is not uncommon in that industry. And uh, this was in like the, um, I will say 2000 and, um, 2016, somewhere around there, 15, 16 or something. Anyways, um, so up in there, it was up in Canada the um their market was really challenged right now because of supply chain issues and their cost of producing oil in Canada is actually very high uh, relative to producing oil down in Texas for example and so uh the, even though they had some discoveries the type of oil that they produced in Canada called it's in the um it's up in like Alberta and Calgary area um, they're not like deep pockets of oil that's sitting in a big pool. It's very complicated and expensive to extract the tar. It's called tar sand. And so it's like sand and there's processing that goes. And so it makes it expensive to produce that oil um, be, given the technology they have. And so um, they're always also almost a secondary market in that area. Anyways, so this is a commodity market. And I, I happened to be up there and they were looking at replacing some some of the software elements within their uh, organization. And uh, I was a technical salesperson there. Anyways, so um, we're sitting, I'm sitting in the lunchroom uh, between meetings uh, working and uh, this fellow walks in and he sits down with his cup of coffee at, at the table with me. It's a full room of folks and we're chatting. And um, so I introduced myself and come to find out this is the CEO of this like $4 billion company. And so I'm just like, Whoa, I've heard like I've heard everybody talk about this guy in the meeting. So I was like, whoa, this was awesome. I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a lunch. I'm gonna learn something from this guy. And uh, what what I learned from this fella is I was asking about like I had looked at their stock and it was way down, way down, like way, way down. And they were getting ready and preparing for a hostile takeover because the way the stock market worked in that case was you know, you have all the stock, your millions and millions of stock out there. And it was so low that if someone went out and bought all the stock on the stock market and owned, bought basically the company up, what they you would get if you bought that would be all the royalties of all the oil that's in the ground and all the equipment and f- infrastructure that they had built. And the value of the assets were greater than the entire market capitalization of the company. This does happen every once in a while in the economy. So 
they had delayed, they were working on cost cutting and that's why we were there cost cutting, helping them, you know, reduce costs and improve IT. And so uh, IT and lower their sales general SG&A costs. Like that's where IT shows up on the balance sheet. Anyways, again, get to the point. Come on, Pierre. What do you get through the point? I promise, Judge, I have a point. And here is the point. <laughs> in in the commodity business, When the closer you get to that commodity, when the market is down, that is when they want to do projects. That's when they. That's when you want to hit them up with, um, "Hey, we can change your improve this. We can reduce your cost by X. We can, you know, because the at the time when they're lowest is when it's the lowest cost to make the change. The risk to their ongoing business is pretty low, and you're basically helping that guy that was sitting across the table. I'm helping him improve his in balance sheet." By lowering his expenses, by lowering his cost, uh, one of those numbers that's on the the balance sheet depends on where your product sits. But you know, if it's a if it's something that's deductible like equipment, it's an asset. They add it to their books and it increases the value of the company. Often, when they're doing costs cutting, they're looking at hey, we have all these on premise systems and they wanted to move to cloud-based systems because that would help them capitalize that that uh, investment in a different way. And it would lower on the balance sheet their sales, general, and administrative expenses. And so it was worth a million bucks because we were basically trading a million dollars of software that they were going to write a check for, for about $5 million reducing their sales, general, and administrative cost. So that was a number that was on their balance sheet. And he could say now to his investors and to the CEO or to the to the market and the board, hey, we're, we're partnering and we're investing to reduce our expenses. And uh, when you're um, when you got a big company like that, that's the time to do it. That's the time to do it. That's the time to do it. That's when they do these kind of changes. So anyways, hopefully that's a good strategy. It took me a long time to get there. Why did it take so long? But anyways, in commodity businesses, just know where your value is in that supply chain. Um, Some companies, they don't want to do any changes when times are good and times are tough. So we're all looking at this as as buyers and consumers of homes and go, man, our price is going up for these 300% over the last year to build a house. Um, that that's expensive. Um, the, uh, but, uh, to some folks in that supply chain, that is awesome. That is awesome. It, it costs the same to chop a tree down at regardless of the cost it's, it sells at market. The, the cost of producing the tree is the same. So anything that I can do in that supply chain that re, um, reduces their expense or helps them increase production to meet market demand, they're all for that. Uh, but they're going to perceive anything as a risk. Uh, as a risk of interrupting that awesome, uh, don't kill the fatted calf, you know, don't, 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 uh, you know, let me still keep shipping what I'm shipping. Anyway, so that's a, that's a little insight, little strat, stratagem, little stratagem there for you, little stratagem on that. So yeah, there you go. How's that for a deal? It's pretty good, right? I guess where, what's happening there. Come on, Lord help us. All right. So that's the all right. Well, um, hey, let's take a, a quick little break. And uh, yeah, I know it's funny. I know. I know. I kind of laugh at this because over the last, uh, I've not been able to keep my, uh, my, uh, my, uh, you know, the, the time very good. I have it. So now I'm working on my time. So let, you know, hey, let's, let's work on the time. Let's work on the time. So, hey, I'm going to take a little break. I'll be right back. 
And we're back. And we're back. I needed that break. Whew. It's been a long day. All right. We're back. We're back. We're back. We're back in the stack. And uh, so there you go. That's right. Let's uh, get into Let's get into it. I have one other little topic, and, and this will take me a few minutes to talk about because, man, I've got a lot of stuff on this. This one is a this is a pickle this is a pickle uh in uh our friends at uh, studyfinds.org studyfinds.org which is a uh, which is basically a website that goes out and pulls in the studies that different organizations do and they just kind of make comments and publish on it as i am doing at this exact moment in a recent survey of 2000 us residents well, almost half of all Americans, modesty is not their best quality in this group of 2,000 yahoos. No, these Americans, this study found that nearly one in two of them believed they were the best person that they know. Okay, let me say this again. Nearly half of those folks thought they were the best person they know. So out of all the people that they know, they, they think they're the best one. Now, I've done a couple studies on this before. Like, how many people does a person know? Like, what is your network of people? How many, like, folks do you know? And it's interesting. It's interesting. Now, don't go to LinkedIn to look this up because <laughs> those are people in your network that you may have met or looked at uh, and said, hey, we're potential colleagues or rivals, so let me be a friend with that person. I've got, like, 4,000. On on my, like, Twitters and the Instagrams, you know, I've got 1,000 people or so. I don't personally know everybody on that list, of course. I wouldn't call them friends at all, and I don't really know them. Um, but usually most of us know about uh, 200 to 400 different people. So think of all the people that are in your, like you went to high school with, right? Like that's about the universe of people that you know, depending again on your graduating class or something like that. I think I had 300 people or so in my graduating class. And that's about the universe of people that I would maybe be on first name basis and I could call up and if I had a problem or, you know, uh, whatnot. So a couple hundred people. 100 people at church. I know every one of them, you know, so that's, that's that people. I got people at, at, at work and, uh, you know, like 10, 15 people in my neighborhood. That's about it. I try to keep my, my friends close, I guess. Uh, some people don't, you know, they're very picky on their friends. Anyways, that's not what the point is. Anyways, get on with it. Get on with it. Wholesome us. All right. I'm sorry. All right. Uh, so anyways, what I'm saying here, what is he saying? 46% of the people think they're the best person that they know. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about judgy, about people being judgy. Like, why are people so judgy over each other? Um, all of these types of questions I have, um, because I'm, I try not to be judgy, I don't think. But, and yet we are judgy. We are judgy to a fault, obviously. So um, a couple of things that I found to be really helpful in this uh, conversation, I've uh, made a link in my stack towards a book that was written in 1975 by Mr. John T. Malloy. I actually met John T. Malloy uh, in 1983. He came to, to my college when I was in college, and I actually got to shake the man's hand and look at him in the eye and talk to him for a minute. And he wrote this great book 
which is a little dated by today's standards because it's about clothes. It's about dressing for success. And this guy was a really a sociologist. Uh, his background was in sociology. And he had written a book in, um, about um, the effect of dress and how that worked out from a sociological standpoint. And he would do different, um, uh, let's say, social experiments. He would like rent an office and he would pretend I'm going to be the, the the boss here, and I would they would hire a temp agent, call the temp agency, and say uh, we need a secretary for this afternoon. And so the secretary would show up, and he would say to the secretary, "Hey, I'm I'm working. I've got some paperwork that I'm working on. If you could just answer the phones, and also I'm doing interviews today." And so I need you to coordinate those interviews. Uh, they're going to take about 20 minutes each. Um, you can interrupt me uh, and because these are important. And um, and then he he would go into his office and then he would let the mayhem begin. <laughs> and what they would do is uh, they would take um, people, um, individuals, men and women, and they would just basically... Um, show up with a resume, said, I had an appointment today at uh, two o'clock. And the other person would just also be standing there. I also have an appointment at two o'clock and uh, they would have different clothing on. And then uh, they, she, the secretary would say, thank you. Uh, Mr. Johnson is busy right now, but let me call him and let's, we'll get you in, in, in a few minutes. So why don't you have a seat on the couch? Coffee's over there. Um, make yourself comfortable. I'll be right back. Basically is right. The secretary is doing her job. She's doing a good job. And so, now it's up to her to pick which one of those two people get to go talk to the uh, to the boss first. It's her decision. And so, of course, she's got to make some sort of choice. She's got to make some sort of subconscious choice of which which one is she going to prefer in this this equal um, um, race. And so what they would do is they change the clothing of people and their appearance. And they kept track of all of this in a scientific study way. They swapped names of people with different secretaries, and they did this over a long period of time. And they came up with a bunch of advice, basically, uh, today um, on what to wear, because they saw that all these different secretaries in different parts of the country were basically had very similar behaviors. So uh, the, one of the best examples was on um, on interview, if you walked in with a brown or black trench coat versus somebody that had a khaki trench coat, that you were going to wait. The guy with a trench coat that was khaki, he would get to go first. And this was like all over the country. This was consistently happening. In some parts of the country, the person that wore um, a white shirt and a red tie Versus somebody that wore like a pink shirt back then, dudes did this. You <laughs> just look at Lee Iacocca pictures or something like that. You wore a, like a blue shirt or a pink shirt, but the collar was a, an alternate color, like white. And instead of having like a tie clip, you had a tie bar that went into the like a pin underneath the collar. Then it popped that collar. It looked so sharp. Everybody wanted that look. That was like super high end professional. And uh, so, of course, those guys all got in before the guy with just the white shirt and the black tie. Like the, so the ties, you know, became more flamboyant and, and uh, gaudy, so to speak, if you will. But anyways, so this was what, what he did. And the whole idea is that people uh, make snap judgments. They had come up with like some sort of perception. It's hard for that person. If you interviewed the secretary, they would be totally say, well, I didn't I didn't 
even know what that person was wearing. I couldn't tell you what what this was all about. It, but anyways, so <laughs> instead of this guy turning out into a big scientist or a social science and getting at the heart of that, he just basically turned this into a, a like, hey, if you want to get in the job interview first, wear this suit and tie, basically. And this was this was what he he did. Anyway, so that is that is a true thing. Think about that. People have that sh- that small little impression real quick, and that makes you know that gives you some sort of advantage or disadvantage um, in in a situation uh, like that. There's another book that's out by our friend uh, Malcolm Gladwell, and I've read everything this guy has done, and he's just a fascinating researcher. And it's more he's just really an author and like a more like an investigative reporter. And he just draws a lot of like things together and pulls together lots of different things to to find megatrends. So every one of the books that you could read from this guy, you're going to love uh, if you like that kind of sociological discussion or whatever. Anyway, so he wrote a book about um, he called it the the term was blink blink, and um, so it was. Um, it's all about those first impressions. Um, the main subject he had is he they, he used the term thin slicing. That's our ability to use very limited information in a very narrow period of experience to come to a conclusion. And a lot of the times, figure it out, we're right. It's really interesting. Like sometimes, uh, and he has lots and lots of different examples the one that is absolutely one of the most fascinating um, ones is um, a researcher out of, um, he's from the uh, Paul Eichmann. He's um, Paul Ekman, Ekman, I think is the name. He's a psychologist and a professor at the University of California. And he did a lot of different studies. He's one of the top psychologists in the, in the last you know, hundred years. He's really smart guy and he's done a lot of really cool kind of social studies. And he actually created what's referred to as the facial action coding system. And it was a way that he taught his undergraduates to look at expressions that people had and then just categorize them as in some sort of emotional bucket. Like this is a happy face. This is a sad face. And um, this is a, a face of disdain. This is a face of surprise. This is a face of anger. All of this, and he came up with a system that let you basically mathematically say, this is what that expression is. And so what he would do, and this is the crazy part, he claimed, and his research showed, that the face is such a rich source of information for people, and we're so tuned to this as as human beings, like just right down in our DNA of classifying and uh, figuring out where risk and danger is and all the things that, you know, that are kind of bred in our bones, as they say, he was able to, he is able to a 95% accuracy predict when people are going to get divorced, not by listening to what those people say, but by looking and categorizing what they show on their face. And uh, so it's really interesting. These guys called micro expressions. And if you are able to pay attention to those, you can kind of, it's kind of like card counting. If you're, if you want to know, he's basically able to start counting up all these different micro expressions that people have and come up with a conclusion and finds out that, that, 
he can count it mathematically and show it empirically. And the person that's on the other side of the table listening to the, the bozo talking, the, the, the mean husband or the mean wife, is having that same experience and same impression, but they're having it at an emotional level. And so he's able to just kind of match up the the numbers with, with the people's emotions. Anyways, pretty fascinating. So why is this important? One, can you read people by their face? Um, some people are really good at that. I am not good at that at all. I'm not. I'm not very good at that. I think I'm missing some sort of, um, you know, sixth sense. Some people are really, my wife, Blanca, she is awesome at this. She can look at people and size things up really quickly. I am not. I am just, I just don't do that. That's why I've decided just to be optimistic over people, but I'm, I'll be true. I'll be honest with you. I'm easy to take advantage of because of that. Like, I believe you. I'm honest. I believe you're being honest to me, even though you're not. And, um, so I have to be more, um, I have to be, I have to put it up in a higher part of my brain to think about actions and think about it. I don't have a good first impression with people, whether they like or don't like what I'm saying. It's just, I think it's, uh, I don't know, I think people are built differently. Some people are really good at it. Anyways, I think the important part, why is this important? Pierre, again, get on with it already. Get on with it, Pierre. So why is this important? Why am I talking about this today? Why is it that nearly half the people think they're better than everybody else? It's because they're maybe really good at this kind of stuff, and they think they trust that um, that uh, immediate kind of reaction they have to people, and, and they trust that very much. And so that may be true. That may be true. Um, there's disadvantages, though, to that kind of model. Um, in, in the book, that book I was mentioning, Blink, um, there was a, a wonderful young lady, um, Abby uh, Conant. She was, um, she is an American trombonist, and uh, um, she is in in Germany. She was over in Germany, and she selected. She was the first one that was um, in a blind test for the um, Munich Philharmonic, and she goes into the whole story of how basically she was a fantastic. Um, trombonist. She's really, really good. And I know a little bit about this stuff. My son was, uh, you know, like one of the really great uh, trombonists in his class in high school and, and went on to college. And he was very, very good and is still very good at playing the trombone. And uh, the trombone is a... Um, is a very difficult instrument to be good at. It's okay. It's not that difficult to play initially, but to be good at it at that level, you have to be really good. You have to, it's, it's a, obviously we've all seen the trombone, but it takes an incredible amount of, uh, of, uh, of breath uh, power to um, do it uh, as the, the way that that instrument works. And you, it's very athletic Anyways, the com it was commonly held a belief by a lot of professionals traditionally that women did not make good trombonists, and so um, this young lady, when she uh, auditioned, <laughs> she was not able to make the uh, initial audition, so she sent a tape in, and the the, the so this was to be the one of the soloists um, for the uh, Munich Philharmonic, and so. Um, they they uh, they said great you're awesome and uh, we come on you're you're hired you know and because her name was not Sue or Betty her name was Abby it wasn't exactly clear from her um, her resume that she was applying as a woman or a man and so the people didn't really know she was a woman of course when she showed up it was a totally different story um, so. 
this wonderful person got uh, basically relegated to minor positions. They gave her a lower wage than her male counterparts and they looked down on her because she was a woman and she finally left the orchestra uh, at a certain point. And so the point of this was uh, what what ended up happening as a result of this, they ended up doing started to do blind auditions where the um, the the board or the group that's kind of evaluating the musicians, the musicians come in, they sit behind a, a uh, you know, like a panel or something like that. And then, you know, you're basically picking based on the sound of people, not on what they, not their sex. And she was the first one that really brought that up to play. And so that was just an example of where, you know, sometimes that immediate impression uh, that people have uh, uh, in terms of they what they look like on the outside is totally misleading. And we see that all the time in, uh in police interactions, when uh, an African American fella is walking through a, a neighborhood that's predominantly white, and um, somebody's uh, calls the police, say, "There's a you know there's a stranger in our neighborhood," and the police show up, and you know not good things happen often as a result of that, and it's it's scary and sad that um, you know people do look on the outside and make snap judgment based on their they're just blink sometimes. So it's blink can be positive <laughs> sometimes and other times it can be really, really bad. That's why I, I do my best to try to not, uh, not rely on that kind of stuff. Uh, in my uh, evaluation of people, you know, kind of hold my cards a little closer to my vest. And, uh, you know, um, I believe for the best in people until you, till you do me wrong. And, uh, and that's kind of one of the rules, I guess, for me of uh, successful selling. You know, I believe in best intentions often, and it's uh, it's not it doesn't always work. Doesn't always work, but uh, uh, I would rather be on that side of it than than uh, be super judgy over people. So stop being so judgy. Why are you so judgy, people? Why is half of America judgy? Um, one of the other one of the other things. This is just an extra. I'll give you this one here. Uh, I'm going to give you this one here. This is a fr- this is a freebie. This is right off the top of the head. No prep at all. I've said this many times in a uh, little blog post or whatever, uh, and it is this. Here you go. What is it? What are you talking about, Pierre? What is it? Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you hearing the crickets? Okay, no. This is what it is. This is what we're talking about. Half the children that you know have below average intelligence. Half the children that you know have below average intelligence. Can you imagine that? That is sad, isn't it? That is sad. No, what that is, is that's called statistics. Like if you take every person that you know, every child, and you put them in a line, smartest to dumbest, you would have a person in the middle, and half the people are above average, and half the people are below average. That's the way averages work. It's an average. So we have to pick somebody in the middle and you have to pick, you know, this is what I'm saying. So any of these kind of studies or anytime you're judging people based on averages, that's a bad, that's a bad um, model. That's a bad model. Let me give you a personal example uh, because this actually, here's a great story uh, that goes along. This is, this is why we're having coffee together because you know, this is the kind of stuff. This is the kind of good stuff you're going to get uh, talking to the Mr. Hulsebus, uh, because I've been around for a little bit. And uh, so I'm going to tell you a story of being average and uh, actually being what I was called below average. I was called below average one time. 
Yes, that's happened to me, and it was sad, and I was I was really bummed out. So I was I worked for, and I can talk all about this one because this is a long time ago, and the company that I worked for then is out of business now, and it was AT and T. The company uh, that I was working for was the uh, the national data. Uh, I was a data network account executive for AT and T, and I handled um, everything. If you get a map out right now. Get a map. Okay, now go look at where Michigan is, where I live. That's the state in the United States with, that's shaped like a hand. And uh, point to where your pinky is over on the left-hand side. That's where I live. I live over on that side of the state, not where the thumb is. That's Detroit. Over on the left-hand side of the state, that's where I live. Over here, very conservative. Dutch heritage. People are super conservative. Not innovation. Not a hub of hotbed technology over in my part of the state. And I cover every, I covered at that time, everything from that um, state of Michigan, um, outside of Detroit and Lansing, all the way from Grand Rapids north, all the way up to the Upper Peninsula, which touched Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, So if I would go visit some customers, it would literally take me in 1995 10 hours to drive to them. Like I had customers in Iron Mountain, Michigan. Uh, Again, go look at the map. It's a 10 hour drive in the car to go get there. Uh, If I also got in the car and drove west or east 10 10 hours, I would be in Pittsburgh. Like I would go through three states and be in Pittsburgh. That's how big Michigan is. So this, but because some guy in the corporate headquarters at AT AT&T that looked and did territory management, never been out in the field, probably didn't sell a thing ever, but they were part of the quote-unquote sales excellence team. (laughs) We all have those. If you work for a big company, there's these people that set this kind of stuff. You never talk to them. They're just faceless, nameless people, and they, they give the quotas. They, like, dole out. It's like the... Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross leads, you know, this, this holy grail of on the stack of it's like the tablets from the 10 commandments come down from the mountain. And this is, we are presenting now, Pierre, the module, this is the greatest set of customers you could ever have. And so I got this module, this territory list that covered Escanaba and Iron Mountain all the way down to my state or my city. Uh, and so this ginormous, physically ginormous territory, uh, but smack dab in the middle of my territory uh, uh, of all of those different accounts, about 150 different accounts, I had two accounts that accounted for more than half the entire um, hundred and some odd million dollars I was responsible for. So uh, one of these companies, a big ginormous shoemaker company in Michigan, and you may know who they are. I'm not going to mention who they are. You can do do your homework. You'll figure it out. So this big publicly traded company that just outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan, was a customer of mine. And at that point, um, they were at the end of a contract for, for AT&T. And that contract um, gets renewed typically every three years. And they um, the year before uh, I was there, the end of that contract happened. And they decided not to renew their contract with AT&T. They had some bad experiences uh, from a technology standpoint. They had purchased some services uh, that were new. Um, We actually, in the middle of that, had an outage on our networks, which in those days was unheard of. It is the first time it had ever happened in the entire history of AT&T. And they were affected by that outage of a one-day outage on their network. And uh, it it. It really harmed them and harmed our reputation with them. Anyways, they decided they were going to go sell. Uh, they were going to go sign a contract with Sprint. 
And so Sprint was going to be their data network provider. And, uh, you know, I did my darndest that year to, you know, try to resell this whole solution that we had. We took them out many places to different data centers. We tried to help get them involved in helping develop a new product and they would be the first one to do it and help them be innovative. I mean, I tried every trick in the book. I I brought my VP and general managers were all out there. None of them walked away and could help. And this customer was just adamant about, you know, letting their contract uh, um, lapse and uh, there was nothing I could do about it. And so I lost that account. And I took it very personally. I was new into the game. Uh, I was thinking, of course, that territory was given me to me because I was such a fantastic person. But maybe it was because everybody that else that that was given that opportunity um, turned it down, and they crafted that territory in such a way as to make it one person's fault, and, and nobody else would be to blame. I was the fall guy. Uh, hmm. Hmm, that might have happened too. Anyways, so I get called. Hey, Pierre, we need you to come out to headquarters and we're going to talk about this now. And so I'm going to get coached by the people uh, in uh, Basking Ridge, New Jersey, which is where the headquarters of AT&T was at the time. Uh, went out to Basking Ridge, New Jersey, and I got um, brought into this lovely office and I sat at the desk and they're like, okay, you sit here. And then in came about five different people, none of which I knew. Uh, I'd ever talked to ever in my entire life. And they were the management team and the sales excellence people and all of this. And they were going to grill me as to why I had failed in my module and why I was so below average. (laughs) And literally this is, you know, Pierre, we're looking at your territory and your funnel and pipeline. And, you know, we've heard a lot of really positive things about, um, you know, from your customers. um, But, you know, you're failing to meet your numbers and your pipeline for next year is really going to be below. And, you know, we need to come up with an alternate. Maybe we might want to swap out this position. You know, are you okay in this career? Is this right for you? Um, do you have you did, did you not have enough adequate training? Did people not give you enough resources because this territory was solid for 20 years? And and yet uh, in this, you know, you happen to obviously totally screw this up. And uh, you are below average. And let's show the numbers. And there's a big uh, chart up on the on the big board there. And, you know, this big giant bell curve. And I'm way at the bottom of the bell, the bell curve. <laughs> and this is how it works. This is how it works. This is how it worked in that day. And, you know, uh, I've read a lot of books about the military and they call it the head shed. That's the term that, that a lot of uh, a lot of uh, soldiers and folks uh top sergeants or first sergeants and folks out in the field that are actually running the stuff, um, how they refer to, you know, people back in the, in the rear with the gear, kind of people that have no skin in the game. They've never maybe even been out in the field, but of course they know better of how to, and they're really great at second guessing. And that's exactly what happened. And I was looked at as I was below average and I just, just looking at them, I'm like, so what you're telling me is I not only um, retained um, the hundred million dollars we did lose fifty million dollars in one account. That's true. That actually was lost. You know, last year I retained a hundred million dollars. I actually added four brand new customers that are worth about twenty million dollars to the company. Uh, so I actually grew my territory. If you took that one guy out, 
Um, and I did that all while I actually, because my territory was so ginormous, <laughs> I actually got a big giant bonus from AT&T that year because I had more um, mileage expense than anybody else in my um, job description in the entire country uh, because I had to drive back and forth to Escanaba. I was hustling. This was the hustle. This is where I learned, like, this is, I have to go to Alpina, which is like a six-hour drive from where I live at the time. And so, you know, to have a 12 o'clock meeting, that means I have to get up at five in the morning and drive five hours to be at a 12 o'clock meeting. This is the world that I was in. And so these these folks had no clue what they were talking about. Anyways, so sometimes you're just going to be below average. And uh, if the people you're working with don't understand it, um, and they don't like... Um, like understand, they don't want to get into the details with why is that happening? Why did that happen? It wasn't me. Anyways, you can tell I'm still bitter on this. <laughs> but anyways, so I, my my experience is, is for you to, to appreciate, I guess, to, to kind of consider that sometimes you are going to be below average. Um, business changes and uh, you know, you what you want to have is a really good company. If you're a coach, you know, if you're a sales manager or a business owner, you want to really get into the details of why is that happening. And nine times out of 10, the reason it happens has nothing to do with the salesperson. It's not usually the salesperson's problem. When I, I, I'm in the software business and when something doesn't work, people think, well, the software is broken. You know, that's why we need a bug report. I need to open a case. And then nine times out of 10, um, can you just check the power cord? Is that not plugged in? Can you just reboot? Are you on the latest version of the software? Like those three things solve like 80% of the problems. And so sales process and sales engineering and kind of trying to figure out the organizational model behind sales uh, there's a lot of things that could go wrong in that when you blame the salesperson for sales not being done well you got to look at some of the bigger pictures the last thing on the list is typically the salesperson nine times out of ten it's other factors like the market changes the customers have different needs and your product didn't match up to those needs. Is your product priced properly in the market? Is your marketing setting the proper market expectation for what your salespeople are able to deliver? Is this is the process of buying your stuff so flipping complicated that it turns people off late in the thing and they're not late in the sales cycle and other people are easier to buy from? Like there's a lot of factors that go into not making those numbers. Um, and so you have to look into it. That's all I'm saying. Look into the details. <laughs> and don't, so don't use averages as a way to judge people. And so that's kind of the theme today, isn't it? I guess that's kind of the theme. Like, are you average or slightly above average or below average? And uh, when, when you're working in, again, um, kind of organizations that are high performance and sales is a high performance business, um, usually it is not about the people not doing their job. It's usually about coaching them into a better place to be more effective at, at, their, at their doing. Now, if you're early into sales, if you're not that experienced, certainly you can screw things up. Certainly there's always room to improve and there's always room to grow. And as a sales organization, a lot of times you just have to look at that. Do we have adequate training for our folks? Um, can we carve out, We, um, you know, uh, uh, somebody who is a, um, a salesperson isn't like a truck driver. 
It's it's not like a journeyman electrician where, you know, they just have this one skill and it goes and you um, you hire them out for a certain wage to do a very specific thing. And they ha- they follow this very narrow job description to do exactly what they're trained at doing. And they repeat that over and over again. Selling is not like that at all. Selling is a judgment game sometimes. It's knowing when to get out. Uh, it's when to bend the rules around your sales process in order to be successful. And uh, so it's it, that's where... It, that's where it's at. You know, that's where it's at. Um, it's, you know, looking at the system and the processes around that and not just the, uh, not just the guy, uh, the la- it's not like a hot sales sometimes can be treated like the hot potato game. Do you know what the hot potato game is? You know, you have this little, uh, maybe a song that you play, everybody's uh, standing around in a circle and you have a, t- a potato and it's just like you took it out of the oven. It's, it, you pretend it's hot. And so you, throw the potato or toss it gently to somebody else in the circle and somebody plays the song music, some goofy music in the background while the potato's being tossed. And then you turn the potato, you turn the music off and whoever has the potato left with it, they're the loser. Um, <laughs> that's hot potato or musical chairs. You've got eight people, you have seven chairs, you walk around the circle of the chairs and uh, turn the music on and turn it off. And whoever can't find a seat, there's going to be one of them. They're the loser. And some organizations treat their salespeople like that. Like whoever had it last, they're the loser. If, if, the, if the deal is lost, well, it's their fault. It's like a football game when you have a, a, a place kicker is trying to kick for three points right at the end of the game, you know, and uh, what's the, and the, he misses. And then the, the headlines the next day, place kicker loses game, you know, Clutch game performance, you know, lost uh, this this place kicker lost the game for us because he didn't make his shot. Well, you know, that absolves the entire rest of the team for the other uh, 40, 59 minutes of a 60 minute game. <laughs> this guy is he was so the whole game just relied on one guy like you guys all sucked the other part of the game. Nobody else scored all the other tries. Of course, none of them are fault. No, <laughs> it's this one guy's fault. Ah, that's how sports um, weasels its way into here. Anyways, I hope you're having a great day. We're towards the end. We're at the end. Really, we're at the end. I hope you're having a wonderful, 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 wonderful day. Um, Thanks for the coffee. I appreciate it. It was very nice. I I got a cafe latte is what I got. I like that cafe latte. And uh, anyways, I hope you're having a great day. I hope you... um, uh, have a good week and you're looking forward to this summer uh, kids are back from school my my co- kid came back from college this week uh we're having a great time looking forward to some trips i said it before i'll say it again you are a promise you are awesome you are awesome you were known before you were born this whole thing was planned out for you before you even showed up and so welcome to the best career that you could have stick with it Yeah, I promise it'll pay off. Again, check us out, hustleisthehack.com. There's a spot where you can make comments, call into the show, make a voice, go to my podcast. You can actually ask me a question, and I'll answer some of them. All right, talk to you later. Have a great day.